You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. Love you. We're all the same in Christ Jesus. But uh, can we do this today? You know, we've had this every year where this uh, this weekend the Moses uh, Fair uh, joins us. And so our parking lot's full of vendors and there's shuttles going over there. And people taking the parking lot to take the shuttle over there. We thought, hey, why can't beat them? Join them, right? So we're having a short service today and a bunch of so if, you, uh, if you're visiting with us today, it's a little bit of a different Sunday. It's kind of cool to wear shorts to, to church. I've never done this except at a park service, so amen. A few kind of uh, housekeeping issues here, and uh, my wife's going to have some announcements a little bit later, especially that apply to uh, the women's ministry. We have a lot coming up. It's really exciting. But um, the, the app, if you're visiting with us, we have an app that kind of keeps you uh, in the loop with what's going on. So it's at, available at the App Store uh, or the Android Store. Uh, it's called South Bay Church, and just look for our logo, that circle logo, and you can download that. So today, as we're going to get into the lesson, you can follow along with your notes, and then you can also catch up with past lessons. So today, I mentioned that because today we're finishing out our series called Frequently Asked Questions. i got to get my clicker. Um, Frequently asked questions about Christianity. Uh, so uh, we've covered several topics. The topic today is our science and the Bible enemies. And this is our last topic of about six. If you want to catch up on some of the other topics, why, why is there suffering in the world? Does it matter if I go to church? Aren't all, don't all religions believe the same thing? Just a number of different sort of frequently asked questions that people have. So today is about science. And uh, so that's the question. Are science and the Bible enemies? And the answer is no. So that's the lesson today. Short Sunday. Uh, no, I, I have a little more content. But, um, but this topic, you know, this is a near and dear topic to my heart. Uh, Marshall was talking to me on the way here about it. He said it's kind of funny that you got the topic on Short Sunday that you could talk about for hours. And it's true. Uh, you know, I, th- this is really a semester-long course that we could discuss the relationship between science and the Bible. So I'm just going to kind of give you some resources. And then what I'm going to do is I have a kind of a paper. It's, it's a sort of informal paper, but it has a lot of resources in it with a lot of the arguments I'm making today or some of the quotes that I'm going to give you today. I'm just going to email that to all of you over CCB today. Uh, so those of you who want to go a little deeper, you can look at all those resources. And those of you who are not into this kind of thing... You just have to put up with about half an hour of it, okay? So, uh, but, but I love this topic. This is like a, 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 a you know, one of my like kind of uh, hobbies is reading books on this topic. I'm reading a, a book right now called Signature in the Cell by Stephen Meyer. It's all about DNA and really cool. And I just love reading those kind of books. They're good for me if I'm having trouble sleep, sleeping because they're kind of boring enough that it can help me go to sleep. But it's also spiritual, you know? So I, I love it. So I've read dozens of books on this topic. But there is this perception that religion is over here and science is over here. And there's two different ways to approach the world and two different ways to deal with crisis. I want to show you a scene in a movie where you see this juxtaposition of these two worldviews, a religious worldview and a scientific worldview. You'll see it come together in this movie scene right here. I'm a little concerned right now. 
about your salvation and stuff. How come you have not been baptized? Because I never got around to it, okay? I don't know why you always have to be judging me. Because I only believe in science. But tonight, we are going up against Satan's cave again. And I just thought it would be a good idea if you... <laughs> I love that scene. And, and you guys know, if I can figure out a way to make Nacho Libre fit the sermon, I'll, I'll put it in, but... <laughs> But, you, you know, he said, I don't know why you always have to be judging me because I, be, because I believe in science, you know. And, uh, but there is that sort of dichotomy in, in our world. And, and I would argue they don't have to be, in fact, they shouldn't be in disagreement. And, um, but but it's a, this is an important issue for us as a church. In 2011, Barna did a research survey uh, of, of just the religious America, churches, Christianity in America, and uh, found that 60% of why young people disconnect from church after age 15 is because they say it's the church's anti-science. And uh, so that's, that's interesting, you know, that, that that's, there's that perception, the church is anti-science. And so for a lot of people growing up, uh, for the teenagers here, you know, you can, and for all of us, we probably experienced this, where you have certain assumptions about the world or th- certain things you learned about the world, certain things you were taught. And then you get into school and you hear something that is totally against that. And you can have this kind of like, oh, my gosh, I've been duped. I was taught the wrong thing. And that feeling of I was, you know, that I, I, I was wrong all along. Um, I had a, a good friend who um, when he was in his 30s, he found out that his father was not his real biological father. And that was a tough thing for him to process because here this man he always thought was his biological father, uh, he has no blood relation to. And that was a tough thing to find out in his 30s, you know, and process. But I think that can happen with us, uh, with our kids, if they grow up and and they have this idea that church is anti-science and then suddenly, wow, I've I've been fed wrong information when they get into college and they have a, course, or, or even nowadays in high school, a lot of the stuff that's taught, uh, it can, you can have that feeling. And so we, we, it starts with what is science and what is the Bible, just to start with, uh, and, and how could they be seen to be in conflict with each other. The Bible, um, again, this is another course we could take, but the short explanation or the short um, uh, description of the Bible is it's a collection of writings, inspired writings by men who were speaking from God. It's not one book. It was never one book until recently, but it's a collection of these different writings spanning thousands of years. But they're from God, but they're from God through men. And they're within human uh, rationale. They're in human language. They're in human history and they're in human time. So it's God, creator outside of space and time, interacting with in human history and the way that he human, interacted in human history, but it's communicated in a way that is 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 relevant to the its initial recipient audience. Some of these books were written many many thousands of years ago, and they were meant to communicate to that original audience. So, for a scientific audience, thousands of years later, we you know it's natural to go, oh well, there's errors in the Bible, or it has wrong assumptions or it's, it's not communicating scientifically. Of course it's not communicating scientifically. It's not a scientific book. And so the worldview at the time of, of the Bible was this. 
And so uh, this is, I know it's hard to read some of this writing, but this is the prevalent worldview that here's the earth, here's the lower waters, here's the upper waters, here are the stars, the moon, the sun, uh, here's the roof of the sky, you know, here's the uh, Sheol, the place of the dead, God is up here, the throne of God in heaven, the foundations of the earth. So that, that's the prevalent worldview. And, and so the, the Bible might say things that, that are, are explaining things to that worldview. That doesn't mean that, that it's affirming that truth. It's just accommodating their understanding, you know, communicating in a way that they understand. Does that make sense? Like if your kid, if, if your four-year-old asks you what is that piece of plastic that you're using to pay and you explain it to your four-year-old, you're not going to give them misinformation but you're going to explain it in a way that they will understand. And it might not be completely thorough. And so the, the Bible never claims to be an explanation of how the universe was created or how animals came to be in, in precise ways. It says God made the animals. God made man. God made them to reproduce after their kind. It's, it's, it's true, but it's not, in scientific, it's not a scientific genre. It's a literary genre. It's full of metaphor. It's full of uh, it's amazing literature. It, it, as a as a songwriter, I, I, I love. There's nothing better than the Bible in terms of metaphor and depth and layers of meaning. And God is an amazing. You know how when you watch a movie and there's all these layers to it. You know something happens at the beginning and then it comes back at the end and it kind of ties the circle back to the beginning. And we love that kind of stuff. The Bible is full of that kind of stuff, foreshadowing and deeper meaning and. And, and, and this is a type of this, and type and anti-type, and all this kind of great literary stuff. It's, it's phenomenal. I'm not saying that you can't trust the Bible. I'm just saying it's not a scientific book. Does that make sense? And so what is, so that, that's science. What is, or that's the Bible. What is science? Science, uh, at its essence, is just looking at the creation and looking for patterns. Look at the very first scientists... Newton and, and, and those guys, the kind of fathers of foundation, Galileo, they believed that the universe had order because God made it. And that was a unique thought because the ancients didn't necessarily believe that. They saw chaos out there. There's all kinds of different chaos. And so the, the story of the Bible is, yes, there's chaos and God brings order. There was chaos and the, the surface, God was hovering over the surface of chaos and he brought order. He brought light. He brought... He put rules into chaos. And, uh, and so they, they expected that if something, if I do an experiment over here and something ha- occurs, and then I do it again, and then I do it again, and then I do it again, and other people do it, that means it's always going to happen that way. Why? Because there's order to the universe. If I do something here, it's going to work the same with the same conditions in some other place. That's what science is. It's just discovering, uh, you know, how things work. Uh, and, and by and, and I know that's a short and easy, you know, kind of. If you, I know we have some science te- teachers out there, and I'm probably bo- watching it. But the the point is, it's just what do we observe? Now you go beyond science to what what, what I would call a materialistic worldview. A material that's not science. That's a worldview. A materialistic worldview is a view that all there is is matter. You know, Carl Sagan used to say the universe is all there is, ever was, or ever will be. The cosmos is all there is, ever was, or ever will be. That is not science. That is a worldview. How could Carl Sagan say that? Right? 
What authority does he have to say? The cosmos is all there ever has been, all there ever will be. That's a worldview. That's a materialistic assumption that all we know is only material. Everything we experience, we experience with our senses or somebody told us. Uh, you know, we believe a lot about the universe because we've been told it and we haven't experienced it. Um, and, and, and so just to, to claim that, and even scientists will say, okay, we don't understand what 97% of matter even is. We'll just call it dark matter because we don't understand it. But we, we don't know what it means. We don't know how it works. We don't know what it is. There's a lot we don't know. But what science is as, as, at its essence is trying to figure out how does this all work. And so the Bible is God's word. The Bible is God's communication. But certainly the creation itself is also God's creation, is also God's communication, isn't it? Like this scripture on the screen, Romans 1.20 says, For since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, so they have no excuse for not knowing God. What the Bible says is, and, and, and the Bible is really about why more than how. Science is really about how, but gives us no why. It, 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 it doesn't tell us why the universe exists. It doesn't tell us why human consciousness exists. It it, it might seek to, but again, that's entering into metaphysical and that's beyond science to tell us why. But it might be able to observe how. But the the Bible argues that through creation, we can know God. Through, Through what is seen, it says here, through material, we can understand God's invisible qualities. We can see the immaterial behind it. I think that's an incredible concept. And so I would argue the more you look at creation, the more you look at what's around us, the more you can know God better. Because Colossians says, for by him, all things were created. This is Jesus. Jesus is the word of God, the logos of God, the, the, the mental thought of God. Through that, through Jesus, all things were created. In him, all things hold together. So if we're looking at creation, we should be able to learn more about God. And so we can't be afraid of looking you know, we can't be afraid of looking out into creation or looking down into the earth at what's buried there or looking deep within cells and seeing how it all works. Uh, I think sometimes religious people can have this sort of, I'm going to cover my ears and I don't want to hear anything about science. And it's true, a lot of science is anti-God. But there are a lot of scientific people, a lot of very smart, intelligent people who are, are deep believers in God. And uh, there's uh, uh, John Lennox, who's an Oxford professor, says, that nearly 40% uh, of scientists are believers in a general survey. That, I mean, you might say, well, that's not many, that's 40%. That's 40% of the scientific community. Uh, you know, that, that's not known for its, you know, uh, it, it, it almost, when you study science, it seems like there's an agenda to try to take God out of it. And I understand starting with materialistic assumptions because that, that's what experimentation is all about. But that doesn't, that can't say there is not divine. That can't say there isn't something, invisible qualities like we just read beyond. So I just want to give you a few sources of, if you want to look into this further. These are, a couple of these guys are in our church or are close to our church. Uh, John Oakes, he's in the church down in, in San Diego. He wrote a book called There Is, is There a God? Uh, and his website is Evidence for Christianity. And I'm going to send this to you as well, so don't feel like you have to get it all down. But Doug Jacoby wrote a great book about Genesis. Genesis Science and History. John, excuse me, John Clayton. John Clayton is amazing because when I was a kid, I had all these questions too. Like when I was in middle school, 
And John Clayton had these little pamphlets that were about evolution and about creation and, and all of this stuff. And, and those pamphlets really helped me a lot when I was in middle school trying to figure this stuff out. There wasn't a lot of resources. And, and I loved those pamphlets that John Clayton put out. He is still around and he's still doing, you know, you can still subscribe to his mailing list for free. And uh, this website is awesome, doesgodexist.com. His, his, his material is so great. The design element of it is not the best. It's kind of like all kinds of clip art and, you know, like the that word art, you know, with the rainbows and stuff, you know, like in, in Word where you have the word art and stuff. It's kind of that stuff, but the content is so good. Um, another guy, Lee Strobel, he wrote The Case for Christ. There's a movie coming out or just came out uh, based on his life. But he also wrote a, a book that's more general about evidence of God and creation. It's called The Case for Faith. And there's a lot. These are like entry level uh Books and they're on a very readable level. Anybody, um, you know, would, would get a lot out of those. There's deeper stuff. Uh, Michael Behe and Stephen Meyer and and uh, Francis Collins wrote a book. He's the he was the head of the Genome Project. Uh, there's deeper stuff you can read too if you if you're more into it. And I, I'll put that in the the paper I'll send you. But there's great material if you want to go a little deeper. But again, I love this stuff. And there's never been more scientific evidence for God than there is right now. Why? Because we know more about the universe than we ever have known. And the more we learn, the more we go, wow. And so I want to talk about three areas uh, that, that we really see evidence for God. Looking up, looking down, and looking within. So the first thing, looking out, or looking up, or looking out into the universe. Um, Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the world, or all the earth, the words to the ends of the world. So, the Bible is making this claim, that, like I mentioned a minute ago, that creation itself proclaims the glory of God. We can read the Word of God to understand God's communication, but we can also look at creation and hear from God. And what we, what we see when we look out is that the universe is very old and very huge. I mean, immeasurably huge. There are, they're still finding out it's even bigger than they thought. And, uh, you know, there, there's an argument as to if there are more stars than there are grains of sand on planet Earth. It kind of goes back and forth to estimates. Somewhere around the same amount. If you think about all the grains of sand on all of planet Earth and every one of those is a star... That's how big the universe is. That is unimaginable, uh, the, the, the hugeness of space. And what the materialistic worldview says to us with that is, we don't matter at all. We are nothing. Who are we to think that the universe has anything to do with that? I mean, we are nothing. The universe is so huge, we are nothing. But, but a, a godly worldview says, aren't we special? Aren't we special that there's this entire universe to bring humanity into existence? Um, there's there's a, an author uh, named Dinesh D'Souza that says, uh, it takes a universe, it takes a whole universe to make a human being. The universe has to be as old as it is, has to be as big as it is, to have specific characters that it does in order for us to be here. Like the heavy elements, heavy elements that we're made of and, and all the things that go into who we are. 
It takes the whole universe to make us. That, that means we're even more special if you look at it that way, you know. If you ever see like a huge sprawling piece of property with acres and acres and acres and acres and then there's this cool ranch house that's beautiful on that property, it doesn't mean the ranch house isn't special because the property is big, right? It means that it's even more special. Uh, and so that's the way that, that I look at this hugeness of, of the universe. And when you look at the universe, the thing that they're finding more and more and more is how specifically fine-tuned it is. Um, you know, stars, we completely take for granted. You know, yeah, stars are stars. But even just having stars at all, it takes a lot of very precise measurements just as far as the initial conditions of the initial creation moment, which the creation moment is known as the Big Bang, right? We've all heard that. And the Big Bang started as a kind of contemptuous term by Fred Hoyle. He hated that idea. Because if you, if you want to not believe in God, it's easier to just say things have always existed just as they have. And that's what is argued in First Peter. That's what people were saying. Oh, things have always existed. But what, when we look at the evidence, we find the universe had a very definite beginning. There was a beginning of space, and there was a beginning of all the laws of nature, and there was a beginning of time itself. And, and uh, Fred Hoyle, at first, he hated that idea. He called it the Big Bang. Oh, yeah, everything just blew up. But, but that's a misnomer in that it just sounds like a random explosion. In fact, it was, the most, it was the most ordered moment in all of the universe history. Everything since then proceeds to disorder. So that initial moment was perfectly set up. You ever seen one of those, uh, uh, what do they call them, uh, where the... Uh, Rube Goldberg machine, you know, we have all those things and everything has to work perfectly and this hits that and this hits that. And it's kind of like that. Like it was this perfect uh, setup with all these constants. There's about 50 constants and qualities that all have to be exactly, 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 precisely right to a, a ridiculous amount. Uh, l- look at this quote. This is just stars. This is not talking about humans, not talking about the origin of life. Not talking about, you know, animals and all of that. We'll get to that later. Just the odds against only having stars. The odds against initial conditions being suitable for the formation of stars is a one followed by at least a thousand billion billion zeros. That's from physicist Dr. Paul Davies. That's the odds against just having stars. So it just shows you that the, the, the initial calculations are astounding. Uh, there's this... Uh, quote from John Lennox in his book uh, about quoting Sir Roger Penrose, who's another uh, mathematician who estimated the odds of all these constants, these 50 constants being right. His calculations led him to the remarkable conclusion the creator's aim must have been accurate to one part in 10 to the power 10, 1, 2, 3. That is a 1 followed by 1, 0, 1, 2, 3, zeros. A number which would be impossible to write on the usual decimal way because even if you were able to put a zero on every particle in the universe, there would not be enough particles to do a job. You know, it's just ridiculous how fine-tuned the universe is. And so the argument if, nowadays if, is because, okay, it's so perfectly designed, the odds are it, it basically completely zero that this just happened. That, I'm just talking about the universe. I'm not talking about the origin of life. Not talking about human consciousness, none of that. Just, just the universe itself. The odds are zero. So what they postulate now is a multiverse, which is maybe there's an infinite number of universes, and we just happen to be in the one that it was the lottery ticket. You know, we happen to be in the one that everything was perfect. And there's an inf- and so you'll hear things like, well, the 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 math suggests a multiverse. 
The math suggests a multiverse. There's no way to observe a multiverse because by definition, any universe is completely outside of our realm, right? So when they say the math suggests a multiverse, what they mean is it's infinitely impossible for the universe to be like it is. So that suggests a multiverse because we don't believe God. So there must be an infinite number. We so you have to kind of read past what you hear sometimes, those sound bites. And, and to me, it just shows God is, is so amazing. One more quote. I love this quote from Hugh Ross. When, when he talks about this fine-tunedness of the, of the micro dot, of the, the initial conditions of the universe, he says, uh, the most extreme fine-tuning yet discovered in physics. He says, an analogy that does not even come close to describing the precarious nature of this cosmic balance, this is just the universe being perfectly balanced as far as its expansion. This is just one of the parameters the co- this, this astrophysicist Hugh Ross says it would be like a billion pencils all simultaneously positioned upright on their sharpened points on a smooth glass surface with no vertical supports. That's how you know, perfectly fine-tuned the, 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 the Big Bang was. And so looking out at creation, looking at, at, at cosmology is not an enemy of the Bible or an enemy of God. It declares the glory of God. You just got to keep, you know, kind of be able to speak the language and get past those initial kinds of things we run into. Okay, second thing, looking down or looking deep into the earth, looking through layers of, of the earth. Uh, Isaiah 66 says, Has not my hand made all these things and so they came into being? Declares the Lord, These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit, who tremble at my word. You know, everything that exists, I believe God made. And so we can't be afraid to look down into the fossil record and look at what we see and look at, 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 at everything that was made. And, uh, you know, when we do that, we see that we just got here in human time. Uh, I shared at one of our services about this analogy that uh, Louis Leakey, who's um, she's an, uh, a scientist. Her, her, her father's the one that discovered uh, Australopithecus. And so she's a well-known um, you know, uh, evolutionary uh, scientist, but she says that if you took a toilet roll and you unrolled it, and it was 400 sheets in length or so, uh, humans just came into being on the last millimeter of the last sheet. So whole sp- the whole history of our species is just the last millimeter of the last sheet of a whole toilet roll of toilet paper. That's how long humans have been on the planet. Um, and so, again, there's two ways to look at that. You can look at that and say, we don't matter at all, and who are we, and we're destroying the earth, and, you know, it was all perfect, and then humans came and wrecked it all. Or you could say, wow, maybe God was preparing all of this just for this. We're, we're lucky. We live at a really cool time, and mo- you know, a moment in history, and God's timing is so much bigger than our timing. And we're in this, mo- this magic moment right now. I mean, think of a... Uh, Think of an Olympic athlete. Don't they train their whole life and prepare their entire life for one 30-second moment? Everything comes to that one moment. That, that's kind of like, that's the moment we're in. And so it took all these billions of years. It took bacteria, uh, just bacteria on the planet for, for two billion years to get the earth ready so then you could have, you know, these different animals and and, and, and things come onto the earth in the same order as you see in the book of Genesis. You know, there's the creepy crawly things and then there, the things in the water and then there's the creepy crawly things. And then again, this is explained to a, a worldview that they had of, 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 of animals and how, how it worked. So it's kind of in their mindset. The Bible is explained phenomenologically. 
which means how it appears. And we use that phenomenological language. We say, the sun came up early. or The sun's going down. Is the sun going down? No, but we, we talk that way. Is that, that's what we see. That's how we experience it. And so that, that's the way you, when you read the Bible, things are explained as, as they appear. But, but, uh, but anyway, it took all of this. And, and what happened to the dinosaurs and why were there dinosaurs? And, you know, you get that question from people sometimes when you're studying. And I, I don't know. The Bible doesn't have much. Some people argue there's dinosaurs in the Bible and in, in the book of Job and in, in a couple other spots. I, you know, could, could go either way. I don't know. But, uh, you know, some people argue that, uh, that, that dinosaurs existed along with humans and not as far back as we think. And there's all kinds of arguments. And, I, you know, I don't really... I try to avoid arguments. Um, there is this, uh, this boundary line everywhere in the world. There's like a layer of dust 60 million years ago. And so that's why they think an asteroid uh, came and, and it, it caused this thing. And you can read into it what happened. And actually, they used to think that the dinosaurs died of cold and now they think they died of heat that this asteroid caused so much dust and all that dust uh, was inflamed. And so the whole earth got so hot that all the dinosaurs died, not over a long time, but like all in one day. Like all the dinosaurs on earth died in one day. And the only thing that survived was these little like moles and little little critters underground. And so that's how we got mammals. And then, you know, I don't know. It's fun to read and think about. But maybe, you know, there, there's a, um, again, this other uh, author argues that maybe the dinosaurs were important for some reason for humans to come. Certainly humans wouldn't have survived if the dinosaurs had still been here. Maybe God was experimenting with different systems as he was using dinosaurs, you know, with their legs and their arms and their different things he was working on. I don't know how it all works. I just know we can't be afraid to look at the fossil record. And you do see uh, things that show the evidence of God. I mean, the, the... the origin of life is something no one has still figured out. And we'll talk a little bit more about the complexity of life. Uh, when Darwin wrote his theory, he had no idea about the complexity of a cell. And the early uh, explanations for the beginning of life, they thought a cell was just kind of a, a bag of, of plasm. You know, they didn't realize it is a factory. It is the most complex thing we've been able to figure out is a, a cell. And uh, so this guy, Dr. Walter Bradley, said, if you took all the carbon in the universe and put it on the face of the earth, allowed it to chemically react the most rapid rate possible, left it for a billion years, the odds of creating just one functional protein molecule will be one chance in 10 with 60 zeros after it. Um, and a protein, if you don't, you know, proteins are kind of like the machinery of life. Amino, uh, proteins are made of amino acids. Amino acids are like little building blocks. So we all hear, you know, as we're growing up, we hear that story of, oh, they, they put all this stuff and they zapped it with energy and they got amino acids and that's how life was formed the same way. And, and that is a very, very shallow and a very, very, that's not a thorough explanation. In fact, those were not the conditions of the early earth. And amino acids is completely different than a protein. protein you know, again, I could get into the weeds with this stuff. I got to move on. I love this stuff. Uh... So, I want to talk about uh, just when you see the fossil record and what you see. What, what Darwin's theory would uh, presuppose is that there was not many types of animals, and then they've gradually branched off into all these different things, right? That's what we all hear. Um, and, and evolution is a fact in terms of, Animals do, plants, animals do evolve, they do change. There is mutation. Now, mutation, I read a book called Edge of Evolution that studied mutation very thoroughly. And, uh, 
it has not been shown to... Mutation is almost always negative. It's almost always bad for the species, not good. And there's, there's, they've been studying bacteria. Bacteria uh, mutate and change quicker than any other species. And so there's been 150 years of studying generation after generation after generation of bacteria, 150 years of studying, and there's never been one species turn into another species of bacteria. Um, so, so all of that study, they've never seen it happen once. There, there has been some mutation happen that's beneficial, like there's bacteria that, that mutates so that antibiotics can't get it anymore and that kind of thing, but not like new species and all that kind of stuff. That, 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 that has not been seen. And what you do see when you see the, fo- the, the fossil record is you see what's known as the Cambrian explosion. These are morphology means body type. So there was a few body types and then Cambrian, all of a sudden there's all the phyla, all the body types, and all these critters that look like this, or this, or this. Very complex critters that just appear. It's not like soup. It's just bacteria and a few, and then Cambrian explosion. You can Google it, Cambrian explosion. All these body types. And there's no explanation for that. They're, they're, they have explanations like uh, I could get into, but if you use your brain, it's like that doesn't make any sense. Uh, that's another one of those early critters. So, so where, where does this come from? Well, you do see, no question, you do see comparative anatomy. You do see like similar systems, right? Here's a bat wing and how it's formed. Here's a porpoise uh, flipper. You see how it's very similar? Uh, here's a horse leg and it's got these same joints uh, as our hand you know our hand is kind of like a bat wing so you see okay there's similar and so the argument for evolution uh without any kind of intervention just natural evolution is yeah we all it all evolved from a common ancestor and it was all driven by natural selection natural selection is a fact evolution is a fact but does it provide enough to get all the diversity of species that's the big question Uh, you know another argument other than common descent, is common design. Maybe these have a common designer. Uh, as a creative person, if I find something that works, like in a, you know, I'm writing songs and I, I put together this one song, if I, if I build some beat or build some uh, you know, sound bank that I like, I might reuse it over here for a completely different song. Or I might, I might tweak it a little bit and try something new. When I look at creation and I look down at the fossil record, that's the kind of thing I see. You see, okay, maybe God was trying these different things. Maybe God used evolution just the way it's explained to us. But, but, but to say that all of this happened undirected, that's a huge leap of faith. That takes more faith to believe than to believe in a designer. And I could get into more of the reasons why. But one more quote I'll give you. Uh, this is from a... a uh, and then I'll talk about this real briefly. I've got to move quicker. Um, Ann Gouger, this uh, senior research science, scientist at Biologic Institute, uh, she says that just because similarity between two complex structures exists doesn't reliably indicate an evolutionary path between them. For example, like you can have a motorcycle and you can have a bicycle. Those are very similar, right? And so evolution would tell us you, basically, what evolution does is you look at bodies, or you look at systems, and you go, okay, this evolved from that, because they're similar. And if you looked at a fossil record and you saw deeper down, you see a bicycle, and then up here you see a motorcycle, and then there's another looking bicycle, 
they would say, okay, the motorcycle evolved from the bicycle. That's, that's basically what we do. And yet, if you think about how, do, how would you get from a bicycle to a motorcycle, how would you stepwise change one thing at a time and then it's better? And every, every step has to be better. Every step better, 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 and then you get to the motorcycle. There's not really an easy pathway from the motorcycle, the bike to the motorcycle. Are you with me? Am, am I losing you? Just because two things look similar doesn't mean that one came from the other. And especially if you can't figure out what's a stepwise way to get from one to the next with, with every step has to be selected for, overwhelmingly selected for. And so anyway, that's the kind of cutting edge stuff is how does evolution actually work on a molecular level? That, that's kind of the cutting edge stuff. When it comes to human beings, because there's no question there are all of these humanoid looking fossils in the ground. There's, there's upright apes. That, there were many upright apes. Many, 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 many species of upright apes all over the earth. And so what they used to say is that man evolved from upright apes all over the world many, many millions of years ago. The cool thing is that through DNA evidence, we'll talk about DNA last, through DNA evidence we've been able to see that, no, no, all human diversity on the entire planet is only 60,000 years old. We all have a common ancestor 60,000 years ago. You can prove by DNA. That's really cool. All people on the whole planet, so they say now everybody came out of Africa and spread around the whole earth. So all the racial diversity, all the differences you see in human beings all happen very, in a very relatively short time. 60,000 years is a very, very short time uh, in, in terms of evolutionary time and all that. And so all these, all these, all these uh, upright apes exist all over, but that doesn't mean we came from them. And, uh, and again, I could get more into that. But one thing about, we see about the book of Genesis is it does use two different words for creation of man. In Genesis 1-7, it says God created, the, the Hebrew word is bahra, man in his own image. That word, Hebrew word bahra means out of nothing, ex nihilo. There was nothing that existed and then something existed. Same word for God created the heavens and earth. He created the universe out of nothing. And that's what science says. There was nothing and then there was something. Um, the second word that's used in Genesis 2-7, the Lord God formed Yatsar, the man from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That means to form from existing materials. So you take something and you form it, you shape it, you mold it. That's the word Yatsar. So when it comes to our bodies, our bodies are made from existing materials. However God did that, was it literally he took dust and he formed it? Or is that more of a metaphor for what he did through evolution or other processes? I, I don't know. I just know God did it. And that's our body. But then our soul or our spirit is, is in the image of God. Our body's not in the image of God. Right? Our body is like the animals. It's like the, you know, you go, ever go to the zoo and you look at a chimpanzee, it's like, oh, this looks like a little man. You know, it's just kind of amazing. Uh, but our spirit, there's nothing else in creation like the human spirit and, 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 and the human uh, art and development of, of science and language. There's no other animal that has language like we have. And there's something about us that's very different, very unique, and even scientists will acknowledge that and that's the part that god formed in his image it formed out of nothing bara okay last thing i gotta move quickly here looking within psalm 139 14 says thank you for making me so wonderfully complex your workmanship is marvelous how well i know it and uh this is a a diagram of not a very good diagram but of dna and how dna is put together i want to show you a quick video 
of how DNA works. Nanofactory, a factory where on a very small scale, digital instructions are being used to make the components of the factory. Here we have the famous DNA double helix. You can see the two helical strands that are intertwined and wind around each other on the outside of the molecule. This is the material that stores all of our genetic information. In higher life forms, this will be the equivalent of something like a gigabyte of information stored in the molecules that form the individual chromosomes, all packed within the nucleus, which is a tiny fraction of the entire cell size. So what does DNA do? Well, the information in DNA ends up providing the information for sequencing the amino acids to make protein. We have information in a one-dimensional form that provides the information for a three-dimensional form. And this is really the cutting edge of science right now, is DNA, CRISPR, being able to make changes to DNA, uh, how DNA works. Uh, there used to be a myth of junk DNA that most DNA is junk because only a little bit of your DNA is, to, is used to make proteins, what he's talking about. And so there's all this other DNA. What's that for? Well, that's kind of cutting edge. It's called epigenetics. And, and they're discovering all of that actually has uses. And uh, it's almost like a pro, it's programming. There's all this programming built into this code. And it is just like digital code. It's information. It's 600 uh, it would be 600,000 volumes of information in one strand of DNA, of human DNA. And, it's, and it's, it's, it's not just random information. It's very, very specific information. Where did that information come from? And I've run out of time, so I'm going to have to tell you about that some other time. But that points to a designer. Uh, the fact that there's digital code. And, and the modern c computer stuff is, they're looking at DNA. Well, that's the best way possible to store information. There's even a band, OK Go, wants to release an album on DNA. Or store their their tracks on DNA. Because DNA is an information storage device that will last forever. I mean, they study DNA that's, hundreds of thousands of years old or whatever, you know, the, the, the stuff from the Ice Age. Um, maybe not quite that old, but it, it, it'll last a long, a lot better than our hard drives. And so it's, it's amazing technology. And so this guy, uh, when it comes to nanotechnology, I like this quote. Uh, Dr. James Torres says, I build molecules for a living. I can't begin to tell you how difficult that job is. I stand in awe of God because what he has done through his creation. My faith has been increased through my research. Only a rookie who knows nothing about science would say science takes away from faith. If you really study science, it will bring you closer to God. I love that quote from this nanotechnologist saying, you know, and that's another cutting edge is, is nanotechnology. And uh, I, know, I know Rick is working on some stuff right, right now with that. It's amazing. The human cell is amazing, but I can't tell you about it anymore. So what's our response to all of this information? You know, there's the seeker. And I think... Many of us might be seekers or we might have friends that are seekers. And that's, I want to believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And they're going to find a lot of great information. But there's also the skeptic where, like in Luke 16, uh, Abraham tells, tells the rich man, if, you're, if your family won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even as someone rises from the dead. Just there's people that not, no amount of evidence will ever convince them. Because for some reason, you know, maybe they had a bad experience with, with, with uh, religion. Maybe, uh, maybe they want to justify themselves, but they're dug in. And so we just have to be, 
we have to be respectful. We, we can't be argumentative. We can't get into these foolish and, and, and stupid arguments, as Paul says. And he does use the word stupid. All right. One reason I think people can be skeptical is, is Job 40. God is telling Job about all of his creation, because Job is having a hard time. And he says, would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? I think that's what we do. We want to we bring down God, or how could a loving God this, or how could this happen, why is this happen, or why do lions eat wildebeest, what did the wildebeest ever do to the lion, or, you know, I don't know. Uh, we can discredit God, why? Because we want to justify ourselves a lot of times. We don't want to be accountable. Uh, and, and conversely, and, and we're going to sing a, a song before we take communion called This Is My Father's World. Um, conversely is we can look closer into who God is. And I would argue the best way to know God is through Jesus. And the unique thing about Jesus, and you might not appreciate this, but before Jesus, no one knew of God as Father God. God was Creator God. You know, El Shaddai, the Creator, the Maker of Israel. God was Yahweh, the Deliverer of Israel. But then Jesus comes and says, pray to God as our Father. He's our Father. And, uh, and, and at one point, uh, one of his disciples, Philip, says, you know, Jesus is trying to explain to him what's going to happen. This is right before his death. It's at, during the time of the Lord's Supper, actually, which we're going to celebrate right now. And, uh, and Philip says, well, Jesus, just show us the Father and that will be enough for us. You know, sometimes we say that. God, just part the heavens, tell me in a big voice, you exist, and that will be enough for me. <laughs> you know, uh, that's the kind of deal we want to make with God, you know. And, uh, and yet... Jesus says to, to Philip, don't you know me? You've been with me this long. When you see me, you see God. Nothing will show you God better than Jesus himself. The character of Jesus, the nature of Jesus, the stories he told, the worldview he had. Nothing will point you to God more than Jesus. And so that's why we come together every Sunday to remember who he is and what he did for us and how he rose from the dead, to remember his body and blood given for us. And we're going to sing a song right now that I love. It's from my childhood uh, called This Is My Father's World. Um, you can stay seated, and uh, Paulette and I are going to sing it. And as you catch on, we'll, we'll ask you to sing with us on the third verse. But just reflect on the words of God's creation, and then we'll pray for communion. So let's have a moment just to pray. As we pray, tell God one thing you love about His creation, and then we'll sing the song. So let's pray. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.